Aloha. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Lockdown Podcast Network. It's our holiday edition. My guest today is the athletic Seth Davis. We're going to talk about NBA's how the NBA world missed on Steph Curry in the 2009 draft. We're going to talk about Seth's top draft prospects. And we're going to get into Seth's obsession and now my obsession with the greatest Christmas movie of all time. It's a Wonderful Life. Thanks for making NBA Big Board your first lesson every Friday. This episode is brought to you by Truebill. Truebill is the new app that saves you money by helping you identify and stop paying for the subscriptions you don't want or need and can even negotiate better deals on those you want to keep. Here we go. And we're back. Seth, aloha. Aloha and mahalo. And listen, I know it's your podcast and everything, but I, I got to start with a correction right off the top. I mean, for you to say that It's a Wonderful Life is the best holiday movie of all time. I don't know why we have that qualifier. Don't we all agree that it's the best movie of all time, period? I mean, I don't think we're restricting it to the holidays because then you get into a whole diehard conversation and it gets complicated. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think you can make that argument, and and for our listeners, uh, we're definitely gonna—I'm not joking—we're gonna dive into this in our in our third segment uh, today, because if you don't know, Seth live tweets "It's a Wonderful Life" every Christmas Eve, right? Christmas Eve, and it's been airing. You know, it used to be one when, when NBC got the rights back to it that they would only air it on Christmas Eve, but I guess now they're airing it more than that. But I will not watch it until uh, Christmas Eve. So no spoilers, anyone. Don't tweet at me. I don't want to know what happens at the end. I want to be surprised. So if you want to if you want to follow along with that, that's at at Seth Davis Hoops. Uh, I actually follow this along. He got me obsessed with it. We're going to talk about. It. I actually rewatched the movie on the airplane home last night just so I could be super sharp. Even though I've seen it like twenty times, but I wow. think Seth's seen it like a hundred. So um, so I'll be super sharp on this. But uh, I really admire Seth. Uh, been able to work with him for a long time. You see his work over at CBS all the time. Uh, do you, how many sharpies do you have with you, Seth? Like at any one time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they are usually around. Actually, they said people ask me, "Do you get money for that?" And I'm like, "If I was smart enough to work that angle, I, I would." But they did uh, send me a box. I'll send you one of of Sharpie pens with my name on them. So um, that's you know, you you just can't put a price on love, Chad. That that that's amazing, and I'll I'll, I'll get you to sharpie us out at the close of this uh, at this podcast. Something I'm always looking forward to to doing with you. And you know, Seth and I have talked during draft combines, and and he he's he's also writing for the Athletic. He does a college basketball power rankings where he feeds the trolls uh, every uh, every Sunday as well, which is always another fun on Twitter. And and just somebody that I actually really enjoy uh, just as a human being. And so uh, I, I thought this was the perfect time to have him on the show right before the holidays. This is going to be our last show, by the way, of 2021, uh, but we'll be back in January 2022 with our first mock draft of the year. So uh, that will give you something to anticipate here. So we're going to go out of 2021 with a bang. And I'm going to start with uh, big news in the NBA, which is Steph Curry breaks Ray Allen's all-time three-point um, shooting, uh, made three-pointers. Uh, it's epic. He's going to break 3,000 soon. I think people think he might easily break 4,000. And there's some people saying maybe he's going to end up hitting 5,000 threes uh, in his career, which is crazy. And over at, at my Substack on nbabigboard.com, I just did a retrospective on how did we miss this guy in the draft? He ends up going seven to the Warriors, which means six teams pass on him. Actually, the Timberwolves had two picks uh, in the draft, but they one of those picks was the Wizards who traded that pick right before the draft for Randy Foy, by the way. And, you know, we'll give the Thunder a pass because they got James Harden uh, MVP as well. But Seth, you know, you were around Seth Curry, Davidson, college basketball. What do you remember about him as a college basketball player and what you thought about what his chances were of becoming an NBA player. And look, no, we never project somebody as being like the greatest of all time. And there's an argument for, for Steph, certainly as a shooter, but in a lot of other ways, one of the, one of the greatest of all times. But what did you think kind of going in, scouting him uh, in college basketball season, Davidson? Well, when you say about, you know, what do you remember him at Davidson? When I, when I think about Steph Curry and Davidson, I remember uh, me playing golf with him. Uh, they had in his little, uh, uh, their campus in Davidson is an amazing, uh, enchanting little town. It's like a Bedford Falls. And uh, they had, I knew he was a, a good golfer. They have a four hole golf course right in the middle of all their dorms. 
And so he used to play out there and uh, I went down and we had a little match and he did beat me uh, on the last hole with the putt. And I was using his clubs, which were too long for me. That's my excuse. But as you can imagine, uh, whenever I cross paths with him from time to time, that tends to come up usually because he brings it up. So uh, the first thing we learned there is that he's uh, clutch and he was a cool kid. Um, look, everybody missed out on Stephen Curry. Nobody could have possibly imagined that you're looking at a future MVP. And let me even take you before then, because my friend Seth Greenberg at ESPN, and we always get tweets at each other because we have a, his Twitter handle is Seth on hoops and mine is Seth Davis hoops. So we get, we get each other's tweets, which is usually not a good thing. Um, and he was the coach at Virginia tech where of course Steph's father, Dell was a big time player at Virginia tech and Steph wanted to walk on at Virginia tech and Seth Greenberg, um, or he wanted to play for Virginia Tech, and Seth Greenberg says he offered him a spot as as basically a recruited walk-on. Maybe he'll be a scholarship player, and basically did not recruit Stephen Curry. And uh, Seth gets a lot of um, flack for that. I recently learned I was listening to a podcast from my friend Rex Chapman. Now Rex played with Del Curry in Charlotte his first couple of years in the NBA. They are the best of friends. He used to babysit Stephen, change his diapers. Everybody knew they had this relationship, and so. When Stefan was a senior in high school, Dell asked Rex if he would make some calls on his son's behalf. Rex had seen him play a little bit, thought he was all hands and feet and wasn't really sure about him. So you know who Rex called? A good friend of his named Johnny Dawkins, who was the head assistant coach at my alma mater, Duke University. And Rex said to Johnny, Dell's son, you may be familiar with him, he's right in your backyard. Do you think he could come to Duke as a walk-on? You don't have to put him on scholarship. Dell's got money. Can he come as a walk-on? Johnny Dawkins said, let me get back to you. A couple of days called late, called Rex back, and he said, we don't have a spot for him. Okay? So if Johnny Dawkins and Coach K and Seth Greenberg and all these people, nobody could have foreseen this. What I will say is this. For my personal projections, I don't I don't know where there's there might, might be some digital evidence somewhere of this. My feeling was that Stefan would be a valuable NBA player and a capable NBA player, not just because of, we all knew he could shoot. I thought he was a fantastic passer and dribbler, and I thought he could be a really, really high-level NBA point guard. The question was going to be, can he get his shot off in the pros? That was, is he big enough? Is he strong enough? Is he fast enough? And another thing that people couldn't have foreseen is the way the game moved in his direction. Now he moved it in his direction Yeah. as now everybody is three crazy, but this whole analytics thing came to pass. I mean, you mentioned James Harden, who I believe went fourth in the third. draft, I, third in the draft. Okay. I, and I, I have caught to this. Um, I, I did not think that James Harden was worth the third pick in the draft. I really didn't. And I wrote that at the time. I thought he'd be okay. I didn't foresee James Harden. And a part of it was because of the way the NBA is played. So what you are unable to project is how much these guys are able to improve. You know, how much capacity is there for improvement? And then are they going to be in the right situation? So, uh, I, you know, look, he went, what, seventh in the draft, I want to say, Steph Curry, right? Yep, seventh. Yep, I, seventh I right, to Golden se State. Seventh in the draft. I actually remember I was at the draft that day with my nephew, Jake Sims. And uh, we actually went to see Steph in his uh, hotel room uh, the day of the draft because Steph and I kind of formed this relationship. And Jake is a big uh, Knicks fan. And so the the, uh, the draft was at the Paramount Theater. That, by the way, was the night that Michael Jackson died. I remember that's where I found out. Oh, oh, yeah, um, right. Uh, at the draft. Yeah, I remember that. Too. Yeah, at huge. the draft. And, and so Jake being a big Knicks fan, we were so rooting for Steph to land on the Knicks. And I want to say that they had the eighth pick and he they went did. seventh to the Warriors right beforehand. So I thought he'd be a good NBA player. I didn't doubt um, the way some people, you know, I saw some tweets, my friend Doug Gottlieb about a lot of people had those doubts about whether he would be athletically gifted enough. I thought because of his passing and ball handling ability that that would kind of put him over the top. But to say that I thought he'd be the greatest shooter of all time, the three point King unanimous MVP and turn out to what he, I mean, I don't even think Dell. In fact, I know Dell uh, would not have projected him to be that. Yeah, and this is what's fun about the draft, right? I mean, this it's 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 hard if you're the draft analyst because it means you're going to be wrong a lot, right? Uh, right. But, it, but it, it's also what makes it so intriguing is that you can line all these players up, and on paper, Seth Curry 
is probably not going to be an elite NBA player, right? His measurements out of out of Chicago at the combine, 6'2 with a 6'3 wingspan. He's not jumping out of the gym. He's not particularly athletic. People worried he was going to get smoked on defense, uh, that he didn't have the sort of physical strength that to defend guys. That question about can he get a shot off? We knew he had unlimited range, and so that, that was one way to get a shot off was just that you're going to take it 10, 5, 10 feet beyond the three-point line, and he could do that. Uh, but then... Then you factor in these other things, this incredible work ethic, um, this drive, this determination. One thing I think, Seth, you and I know is that all of the greats in the NBA, they don't rest on their laurels. They're in the gym constantly refining their games. As defenses adjust to them, they adjust their games. And and you know you see this with Seth and his shot release and how it just keeps getting quicker and quicker and quicker um, so that that doesn't become an issue anymore. Uh, it, you know, it's amazing. I went back and looked at all of my notes, um, right, starting at the 2008 college basketball season. He was outside of my lottery at the start of the season, even though he had had that massive uh, sophomore year where he had shot 48% from three on like 300 three-point attempts, which which should have been somewhat of a signal um, that, you know, this, is, this isn't fluky. And, and he works his way up. And I thought he was going to the Knicks as well. And, you know, th- th- a couple of quick anecdotes that I think were so interesting. The Knicks were part of the the brain trust that lured Seth into the draft that year. They they were still on the fence of where he was going to go in this draft. And Dell reached out to Donnie Walsh. And Donnie Walsh, who was the general manager of the Knicks uh, at the time, he was a big factor in convincing Steph you're going to be in this draft, you're going to be a lottery pick, and we're extremely interested in you. The second thing that happened was the intel was Steph didn't work out for anybody other than the Kings uh, and the the Wizards and the Knicks. It did not work out for Golden State. He famously didn't work out for Minnesota Timberwolves, which David Kahn then threatened that he wouldn't draft anybody uh, that um, wasn't going to work work out for them. And you know the Kings were tough. They, they were a real possibility. The Wizards traded their pick, so they were out. I think everybody thought at the end of the day, he's going to the Knicks. And so when there's trade discussions that are happening on draft night, the Warriors want Wilson Chandler in a, in a deal. Um, I, I just had to actually sort of go back and confirm this. One of my readers was asking me about it, and I, I had to pick up the phone and call somebody to say, hey, with the, what was going on there? When at Wilson Chandler, the Knicks didn't want to give up Wilson Chandler because they thought he's going to fall to us at eight. Um, anyway, the Warriors were bluffing. The Warriors were famously high on him, but they were super quiet about it. Donnie Nelson, uh, you know, the big guy um, b- behind that. And then he almost gets traded to the Phoenix Suns on draft night for Amari Stoudemire. In fact, the Arizona Republic reports that the deal is done, that it's actually done. Uh, and and the general manager of the Phoenix Suns is Steve Kerr, uh, who was after <laughs> Steph Curry. Uh, and, yeah. you know, so there's so many, you know, crazy things about what ifs and, and, and you know, what could have happened. Uh, it's just so interesting to sort of watch this. I really had a, a fun time going through all of my draft notes. Uh, uh, some of it's embarrassing. Some of it seems sort of right on. Uh, but you can check it all out at over at NBABigBoard.com. Steph Curry, uh, also just one of the like greatest people, like the way he handles yeah. himself, his family, um, everything else. Everything about him is superstar. Um, one of the guys that I just frankly have enjoyed covering maybe more than any player uh, in the league other than, than Michael Jordan, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking like even across sports, if you wanted to come up with the combination of athlete person, you know, who who would make that list and and watching the way that he conducted himself, even through this whole record chase. I mean, another guy who comes to mind with that is David Robinson. Um, I happen to be a big Tom Brady fan in in, in that regard. Um, He comes to mind. I know he's got a little hair on him with with the flake gate really is the only thing that comes to mind. Jerry's a little mixed uh, on that. And then Derek Jeter. Was another one that 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 came to mind. But you're talking about quality people and quality athletes. Um, it's a short Patrick list. Mah- How about Patrick was- Mahomes is. I'm from Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes okay. is quickly moving into that. Okay. I don't have as much of a feel for his personality. I mean, it seems certainly seems like a good guy. And another yeah. guy who uh, went later in the draft than he should. You know. So look, as I, you and I have all these conversations, and you have many more than I do with scouts and NBA GMs and executives in covering the draft. And first of all, 
you must be like the most lied to person on the planet earth because as i say in, in covering the draft like i get lied to so much at a certain point it's it's you know i i prefer to talk to the lower level scouts because i feel like they're a little bit more honest with me because they're not really making um those key decisions but then the other thing is is just how much guessing is involved and how much luck is involved so it's like you know someone says to me well you know i really they're asking my opinion. Well, I really like this guy, and they say to me, "Well, would you stake your job on that guy?" I said, "No, but I'd stake your job on that guy." <laughs> so I'm glad I don't have to make those those picks for a living. One last anecdote, and then we'll pivot to the 2022 um, NBA draft. The day before the draft combine, I'm in Chicago in Tim Grover's gym at Attack Athletics, where they're also holding the combine. Steph Curry's there, getting in some shots, you know, before the combine the next day. And I'm standing with a with a, a group of people that are there. There isn't a lot of people at the gym at this time. And Steph is doing what's if you've ever if you're ever going to go to a Steph Curry game, go watch the warmups because it's as entertaining 100%. as the game the game itself to watch Steph and the trick shots that he can hit or whatever. And he's he's doing the Steph Curry stuff. He's not missing. He's taking highly difficult shots. And he's not missing. And standing next to me, I'm not going to say his name, is a quote unquote shot doctor um, who occasionally frequented. Tim Grover's gym and offered up his services to draft prospects that were struggling to shoot. He used to like take the the bill um, out of like baseball caps and he put in coat hangers um, in it that kind of exuded from your forehead. And then the whole idea was to get your shot up in in between this. This was like one of one of his techniques. Now I'm sort of giving it away. And and you know the thing is we're all watching. <laughs> Steph, Steph's not missing a shot. And and then he does. He clanks a shot and then immediately this guy makes a beeline over to Steph Curry and I'm like you, you this is uh, this is unbelievable this is impossible what this guy's this guy's doing right now and he starts he starts trying to teach Steph Curry how to shoot his way Tim Grover walks by in only the sort of dry manner that humor that Tim Grover has and says that dude has onions only guy in the world who's going to try to tell Steph Curry uh, how to shoot and after about a couple of minutes of that with Steph being cool and just listening and being polite not in his head Del Curry walks in shoes that guy off the court and then I turned to Tim and said there is one guy who tells Steph Curry um, how to shoot and it's this guy Del Curry and that was Del Curry. Yeah, that that guy probably would have gone to Jack Nicholas and said, you know, you can't you can't flap that right elbow when on your downswing. You'll never be a good golfer if you if you don't bring in that right elbow tight. So to me, you know, th there is. I'll leave you with this on this topic. Is I've always thought there's a beautiful mystery to the art of shooting a basketball. Yes, there's technique, and we all know what they are: the elbow and the cocking of the wrist, and this and that. And I remember uh, I've seen Rick Pitino, one of the great teachers of all time watching his guys in, in a shooting workout and he was barking out three fingers to the rim three fingers to the rim so there is some technique about it but there is just a a mysterious art to shooting i, I always uh, use the example of, of a guy named aaron Kraft who played for ohio state and aaron Kraft was a great athlete as the starting point guard at ohio state he was uh they're starting i mean he was a great 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 college player exceptionally exceptionally intelligent like like doctorate level intelligence and worked harder than anybody could never learn to shoot a basketball there's no one who's going to work harder study more apply himself more could not figure out how to shoot a basketball otherwise he would still be in the nba so to me that's an illustration that there's just a mystery there and obviously between steph and seth they got a pretty good gene and, and daddy dell all right that's seth davis talking steph curry um before we move on to 2022 draft, do you know that free trials renew without your consent? It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap, tap and your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Don't fall for the subscription scam. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash LockedOnNBA. Go right now, Truebill.com slash LockedOnNBA. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash LockedOnNBA. I'm with the athletic Seth Davis. 
We talked about Steph Curry and how he messed up on the in the in the 2009 NBA draft. The goal is to get better. It's the 2022 NBA draft. Seth, you've been watching a lot of college basketball. I'm not going to grill you on international prospects of the G League guys, huh. the overtime elite guys, but I do want your take right now, and I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Who's the best draft prospect in college basketball right now, in your opinion? Jabari Smith. All right. I don't even, All right. I, don't, I like this I, take. I, I, I this is my I, personal I take even, as well. I don't even have to think about this. Yeah, I mean um, – I mean, I, I knew he was good. Uh, last I checked, his free throw percentage is about 85%. Okay, so he's a guy who's coming in at 6'10". Now, you hate to ever compare anybody to KD because that dude is obviously in a class of his own. But he looks the part, Jabari does. Now, he came in real thin. I've talked to Bruce Pearl about him. And the idea of getting him strong um, is, is a main issue, particularly lower body strength. But he's young. Obviously, he's going to get stronger. Um, you can't keep teach. 6'10 um, with his stroke. I think his his I can look it up for you, but I think his three-point shot is is in the uh is in in the, the 40s uh last I checked. 44.2%. Um now the level of competition is gonna go up, but they've actually played a pretty competitive schedule. They were in the battle for Atlantis. He's not a high volume shooter, so even with those percentages, I mean 17 points a game, 7.2 rebounds, 2.5 assists, 1.7 steals. Now, if Chet Holmgren uh, his three-point percentage is about 33%. If he can get that up to a Jabari level, then I think that can change the game for him. And obviously, uh, Paulo is 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 the other one who um, comes to mind right now. And that kid is is just a monster, but does not have that shooting range that um, Jabari has. And I don't I don't know, you know, he's not as big as is quite uh, as Jabari Smith. Um, and I don't know that he's the freak athlete. They're probably pretty even athletically. So I don't know how they measure. Um, but to me, if I'm just looking at pure, like, who's got the best – if everybody reaches their potential, then I think it's Jabari, and I don't even have to hesitate. Am I am I far off on this? Because I don't see too many other people saying that. Well, I think at the start of the season it was Chet and Paolo. I mean, that, that's and, – and then maybe Jaden Hardy, who ended up playing in, in, for the G League Ignite this year. But when Jabari had that pro day at Auburn, uh, so many scouts walked away and said, okay, this kid has a chance to be – incredible the number one pick in the draft the question was a lot of a lot of scouts didn't really get to see him play much in high school and so it was very much a wait and see attitude and so you know scouts are stubborn as far as moving off guys especially when they have a long track record with chet long track record with boncaro but i will say that it's moved i'd say in the last couple of weeks this this needle has moved in a really significantly way significant way and I, and I would say right now, if the draft were held today, and I kind of went through the top 10 teams that would have a lottery pick, and I think more like six six of them, I think I had Jabari Smith going one to them. Some teams really need rim protection. Chet's there. Only one team, Boncaro, uh, that I projected to, which was the Spurs. I think the thing with Boncaro is he's the most NBA-ready of the prospects. Like You can imagine plugging him into a game like today, but at the same time, I, I don't see the athletic upside. Uh, I'm not sure that the defensive upside is quite there. He's a solid shooter, but not an elite shooter. These are the things that I think probably lower his stock a little bit. So I would have I would have on my personal board Jabari, Chet, Boncaro. Right now on my big board, it's reversed. It's uh, it's it's right now it's uh, Chet, then Boncaro, then Jabari. But I, I would say by the time big board three is rolling around and we're going to do a new mock draft in January. I think Jabari Smith's going to be the number one guy in this draft. Well, I thought I was the only smart guy out there. So, um, obviously, uh, the fact that you think that and that you're hearing that from other guys, you know, confirms that. You know, another guy I don't know that I project him for number one is um, Benedict. Uh, I, I don't know if it's Modern or Modern or Matherin. I'm hearing more Matherin in their more recent games at, at Arizona, but. Um, holy Toledo. <laughs> he's a he's a big time wing, big time athlete. Um, you know, uh, all dunks and threes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's so he's ready and he's an international kid. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he's a guy. That I don't know that I would necessarily put him in a, a league with those other three, but uh, I would I would watch him potentially if he figures some things out. Um, you know, he's six, six as opposed to six, ten. So you got to take that into account. But he can really, really go. He's like an Isaac Okoro, maybe, but with a better three point shot at this state. 
significantly better three-point shot. And I, I think it's the question for him is the in-between game, right? Uh, the assists, the rebound. Right now, it, it's Does like Does that even said, exist off, anymore, by the way? Off, Are you allowed off, to off, have an in-between game, or do they cut you if you have an in-between game in the end? Well, I, I think just being able to put the ball on the on the floor and not just be a straight-line driver to the basket. I mean, right now, his game is still pretty much threes or a straight-line drive to the basket, finish at the rim. He's great in transition. Um, you know, being able to see him create for himself, I think, is the, is the part of the game that that people are still wondering about and create for others, frankly, um, probably puts him, you know, for me in the, like in the teens somewhere, like maybe high teens or, or late teens. What about, uh, what about Jay Nivey? I mean, you know, this, there's an interesting kid, wasn't super highly recruited, uh, you know, uh, comes on strong in Purdue under 19s. He's awesome for team USA. And, you know, the big question about him was his jump shot, but it seems to be coming along. I mean, freak athlete, great pedigree. His mom played in the WNBA, assistant NBA coach, now coaching uh, the women's basketball team at Notre Dame this year. He's a, he's a guy to me that's the sleeper because you're talking about top, top tier NBA athleticism with that sort of aggressive, hungry game on both ends of the court that, that seems like it's going to translate to success. So when we're talking about Stephen Curry, you know, the question is, you know, can guys improve? And I like draft prospects who have shown the ability to improve. Now, I will tell you, I use that logic on Obi Toppin, who so far has not panned out. I mean, I think he's doing better, I guess, um, this year. I don't follow the NBA that closely, but I, I think he's been, been pretty much a disappointment his first year and a half in the league. Um, but Jaden Ivey certainly has shown that improvement and like you said he had a fantastic uh, summer um with the under 19 team in, in usa basketball and he's become a better outside shooter look if you, if you can't especially as a shooting card but now, i don't care what your position is really if you can't make that three-point shot then you're going to have a hard time succeeding in the nba and i'm looking at his stats right now chad he goes from 25.8 percent from three as a freshman to 39.1 percent as a sophomore, pretty much the same volume, 4.23s per game, going up to 4.6. But, but the important thing is that he's gone from being the fifth guy in the scouting report to the first guy in the scouting report. And so he's getting all of the – and they don't have a really – you know, if there's one weakness that, that Purdue has, I think, it's the fact that they don't have that other dynamic perimeter player, both on the offensive end and the defensive end. So it really has fallen a lot to, to Jaden Ivey. Um, he's been more efficient, and he's has a, a much uh, more well-rounded game. And I really like the way that he has taken on the responsibility of being the best player on the team. When there is a big moment, he might kind of disappear here and there during the course of the game like any player will. But when they really need a bucket, and it's not cutting time at the end of a game. He wants the ball, and he wants to make the shot, and he wants to make the other guys look bad. I've seen that in his mentality. So that, to me, is an incredibly promising indicator of his future. Yeah, top guard on the board for me. And 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 frankly, just given the way the NBA plays, this is the other argument for Jabari Smith right now. Jabari's game is the most what the type of game NBA teams cover right now. And then I, I would put Jaden Ivey second because of his ability to – play multiple positions both offensively and defense defensively on the floor the athleticism let's talk about a guy that came out of left field at least for me um freshman okay huge sophomore season johnny davis of wisconsin uh, a guy who did not make my top 30 uh at the beginning of the season but teams are talking about you know him possibly being a lottery pick um now what do you think about johnny davis i think he should be a lottery pick i mean he's got a lot of tools uh, in his toolbox. And again, Chad, here's a guy who has shown the capacity to improve. And Wisconsin is the type of program that will do that, right? I mean, they want you to stay around for a couple of years. Um, I mean, look at Frank Kamitsky. He went from averaging three minutes a game as a sophomore um, to being the best player in the country as, as a senior and, and having them, you know, uh, a bucket or two away from, from winning a national championship. So, you know, last year, Wisconsin was pretty much one of the oldest, if not the oldest teams in college basketball. Davis was a, uh, a six foot five freshman, not really highly recruited necessarily. I mean, he was known, but he wasn't this top hundred guy, certainly not uh, a McDonald's all American. So he's taken advantage of the opportunity to play maybe even a little bit earlier uh, in his career than might've been anticipated because all those guys left. And, uh, you know, I was out in, in Madison in the fall and had a nice long breakfast with Greg guard 
uh, and when we talked about Johnny Davis, one of the things we talked about is that he's not a guy who, like I was just saying about Jaden Ivey sort of being that takeover alpha male guy, he's not naturally that guy. He's not a loud, give me the ball kind of guy. And that has been um, an, an incredible piece of, of growth um, for him um, in terms of being that takeover guy to the point where, you know, watching Wisconsin, you know, I think they've become maybe a little bit too dependent on him. And that um, you know, bit them, I think, you know, they were able to come back. They were down 22 against Indiana. And I frankly don't think Indiana is very good. Um, and then they got embarrassed pretty bad um, against Ohio State because now you're getting scouted, right? Now you're like a pitcher who's gone through the league a couple of times and everybody knows how to go up against you. Um, and so that's a little bit of, of their transition. But he's got a fantastic first step. I mean, he is a great blow by driller at six foot five. So he's got real um size to him and you know he's become a fantastic outside shooter about 38 percent from three-point range you average 21 a game at wisconsin that is that's not easy to do that's not uh you know they're much more of an egalitarian ethos <laughs> in that program so um seems like a good kid and um have been really really impressed with his uh, improvement look i know you're dying to talk about it's a wonderful life i know that if, <laughs> if you could have a full-time gig uh, and it was a wonderful life or college basketball analyst for CBS and athletic. We all, we all know which one you choose. Um, so my final college basketball question for you, who's your sleeper? Who's a guy that, that, you know, maybe Seth Davis is, is in love with that, that, that you would advocate for that, you know, maybe isn't as high in, in other draft boards. Well, you know, I, I'm having a little Ben McLemore um, flashback on this. And so, I, and I was like insistent that McLemore should have gone number one that year. But, uh, you know, Ochai uh, Agbaji of Kansas, um, to me, has had an All-American start. Now, it's, it's early and we'll see how he does through the Big 12. But, um, you know, I... I I, I don't get to as many games as I used to. Um, my TV duties keep me anchored to the desk in New York where I am very well fed. Um, but, I, you know, I, I did sidelines for CBS at Kansas for a Texas Tech game, and I was, like, right next to the baseline. And Agbaji, this was, I want to say, two years ago, so he would have been a sophomore. And he had a tip dunk um, that was so far above the rim, I thought he was going to hurt his teeth on the, on the rim. I mean, he went way up there. And that's a couple of years ago. And that, that's another guy. And he's a great example of somebody who truly benefited from going through the draft process and then coming back to school, taking all that knowledge. See, I know you're not, you haven't asked me this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I have, I have many fixes to the NBA draft process because my feeling is, Chad, this is not about, you know, trying to keep guys in school who want to go. This is about giving everybody who wants to be in school an avenue to come to school but still allow them a chance to maximize their draft potential. My rule change would be everybody's eligible for the draft. No testing the waters, no withdrawal deadlines. Everybody's eligible. Any NBA team that wants to bring you for a workout, a combine, you want to use an agent, they need to be exposed to the NBA. And I also would love for them to um, have more competition in the summertime in these pro-am setups, maybe even get compensated um, for that, where they can take the court against guys they've never heard of who've been bouncing around international ball in the G League and what have you and get their asses kicked by these old men who are playing for dinner and understand how hard it is. So Agbaji went through that process, took it right up to, to the end, brought all of that knowledge and confidence back with him to Kansas and has really shined and, and come into his own. So athletically, skill-wise, maturity-wise, talent-wise, he, to me, I've seen him projected kind of late in the first round. Um, he, to me, is a guy who I think could be a really, really good NBA player. Well, as a Kansas fanatic, I appreciate that pick always. I'm always hardest on the Kansas guys because I, I watch every game, and and it's the only team that I'm emotionally invested in. And so if they miss a shot, they drop 10 points in my rankings. Like, I just – it's uh, it, it's it's irrational for me. But I, I agree. I've been, we've been wondering as Kansas fans where that when this guy is going to turn it on because the talent was there. And for three years, the flashes were there. Um, and it's just been, I, I think we've all been holding our breath as Kansas fans. Like, is this going to turn off at some point? Is that switch going to turn back off? Nope. But so far nope. it's been, it's been at a really high level. And so I, I think that's a great choice. Okay. 
When we come back, now listen, hang on to the podcast. I know there's college basketball and NBA draft fans are like, why are they going to talk about it? It's a wonderful life. This is going to be the best part of the podcast. This is going to be the best podcast I'm going to do of the year. I, I trust me. Uh, this is going to be awesome. And we're going to kick it off by talking about our sponsor, Built Bar, uh, because I just feel like Built Bar and It's a Wonderful Life go together because it's a wonderful life when you eat, when you bite into a Built Bar. These are delicious. Seth, I don't know if you've ever had these before, but they have all these flavors, coconut, cherry, barcia, raspberry, mint, brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, Strawberry, orange, cookies and creams, German chocolate. They're protein bars, but they taste like candy bars. They're chewy. I'm a, I'm a coconut guy. It, it tastes like a Mounds bar. Um, they're absolutely delicious. And uh, they're healthy. 17, 18 grams of protein. Uh, calories ranging from 130 to 180 calories. Only 4 to 5 grams of sugar. Only 4 to 5 grams of net carbs. Order today. Get your grass copper co- cookie or raspberry, whatever you like. This would make an awesome Christmas gift. Uh, Built Bar is the official protein bar of the U.S. track and field team. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use promo code LOCK15. You'll get 15% off your first order. Use promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. All right, he's Seth Davis. He's at The Athletic. He's at CBS. But his true passion in life is the film It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, he live tweets it every Christmas Eve. Follow him on Twitter at Seth Davis Hoops uh, to catch that. And of all the important things that he does every year, I, also, I'll put it as an equivalent, um, your constant reminder us to be kind. Uh, to each other, um, right up there as well, because Seth Seth is a kind person and that type of guy, except when he's dealing with internet trolls uh, <laughs> in his power rankings. It's and, like I can't be mean on Twitter anymore because now everyone's like, "That's not kind." I'm like, "Oh, I know it." Like, <laughs> it's like when it's like it's like ever, if, if your kids ever like quote you back to you to shut you up. I'm like, "Ah, oh, yeah." Listening. <laughs> but it seems like we need this movie right now. You know, I, I'm, I'm watching it today. Uh, it's, it's made in the 1940s. And there was things that resonate in that movie to the challenges that we're going through as Americans today uh, as, a, as a country. Uh, and, and, and George Bailey, uh, we need more George Baileys um, in, in the world. And so I, I, w- I want to start by where did the genesis of this, you know, live, tr- live tweeting Christmas Eve watching It's a Wonderful Life come from. And then I just want to talk a little bit about about what the movie means to you and what it maybe should mean to us um, as a country right now. Well, um, like many of the great things in, in my life, it goes back to my parents. So, uh, you know, as a kid, they absolutely loved uh, that movie. And whenever it was on, we'd have people over and watching it and quoting the lines. And, um, you know, it certainly struck me immediately as a kid, just as a beautiful picture and a beautiful story. Um, and I think what you said, Chad, is, is is very true. And to me, it's the very definition of great art, the fact that it could resonate so many years later um, and, and still be relevant many decades after it was um, created. So that to me is, is, is a beautiful thing. And I've always been sort of interested in it. And, you know, I think it was a little bit maybe later in life that I learned a lot of the stories behind. I'm always interested, like, if I read a good book, I want to read about the author and the other books that author's um, written and how that person came up with the idea and all that. Like, I always want the story behind the story. And there's a really, really interesting story about what It's a Wonderful Life, which is, you know, it came out in, in the 40s and got nominated for an Academy Award, didn't win, and then was, you know, kind of largely forgotten. as like a, you know, a nice movie that went on the trash heap. And what happened was... The studio, in a complete clerical error, error, allowed the copyright to expire. And when that happened, it meant that any television station anywhere had the ability to air that movie and not have to pay the studio for the rights to that movie. And so this happened, I want to say it was uh, the early 1980s. And um, all of a sudden, every local TV station around the country. Now you have to explain to your younger listeners about first of all what a TV station is, and then also just you know a world where there are only four or five channels. Right? I grew up in Washington. We had Channel Four was NBC, Channel Seven was ABC, Channel Nine was CBS, Channel Five was Independent, and Channel Thirteen was PBS. That was it. That was it. And that's where you got your sports news was the local sportscast on the on on the local news. So all of a sudden, this movie, which had been largely forgotten, was everywhere 
throughout the month of December because it was an obvious uh, Christmas story when people are at home trying to watch it. Um, I actually interviewed on my um, ill-fated podcast, Carolyn Grimes, who played uh, little girl Zuzu. One day when she's older, she's walking past a a TV store. She sees TVs in the window and the movie's playing and she's looking at it and she's like, I could be mistaken, but I think I was in that movie. Like she had kind of it wasn't a big thing. And she's like, oh, yeah, I was in that movie. That's It's a Wonderful Life. So that's how the movie got to be rediscovered. And then I think it was in the early 90s where they were able to put that genie back in the bottle. NBC acquired the rights. And so it has um, more limited showings. But that's how the movie really got reborn. Um, and as far as the tweeting, you know, Twitter is what it is. And I think I was just watching it and I just started tweeting about it. And I was having a lot of fun and people replying. And so I don't know how many years I've done it, Chad. I mean, maybe five or six. And now, you know, I live in California. So I, I have the problem of if I wait till it comes on out here, then the whole East Coast is it's already over. So you know what I do? My father, the last few years, sets up like a an iPad or a phone on FaceTime. And he's he's in Maryland and he puts it in front of the TV. So I'm watching the movie um, through my laptop on his device as it's airing on the East Coast three hours before. I tried to figure out if there's a way for me to do that from here, but you, you can't do that anymore because of location. So I, I'll give a tip of the hat to Lanny Davis who, for always being there for me with the FaceTime device. And that's how I can live tweet on the East Coast. And I have fun with it and the replies. And it's really, a, for me, as a nice way to experience the movie. And, and then it's over. And then it comes on on the West Coast, and I try to get my family to come watch it with me for a second time. But normally, they they have by that time they're they're sick of it and sick of me, frankly. It, it, it's what's really really interesting is every year the tweets are different, the takes are different, uh, which is which is partly because this movie is just packed with amazing scenes, important messages that are that are sprinkled throughout the movie. Uh, you really can't take your eyes off it because something is is always happening that's important that's going to play out later um, and that has something bigger to say. And so what's your favorite scene in mm. It's a Wonderful Life? <laughs> oh, man. Like, which is I the one? There's so many. I know. I always try to answer. I, I, I'm going to answer this as well. And I, I well, was juggling look, like 20. I, 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 yeah, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, I mean, I think the easy answer is Harry's toast at the end, which is you just, you know, just a mess. Um, you know what comes to mind when, when you say that is the scene early in the movie where young George is in the soda, soda shop with um, Mary and Violet Bick. So first of all, it's one of the best lines in the movie where Violet says to Mary, says, I like him. And then Mary says, you like every boy. And Violet says, what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> but then, when, of course, remember, George loses his hearing uh, in, his, in his ear earlier in the movie when they fall through the ice. So um, he leans down and Mary leans over to the ear that's, that he has no hearing in. And she says to him, is this the ear you can't hear in? George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. And I have put my kids to bed, my youngest in particular, Gabriel is his name, and my little angel. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll put him to bed at night and I'll kiss him and I'll lean in his ear. Is this the ear you can't hear in? Gabriel Davis, I'll love you till the day I die. So, and then of course, the other one that comes to mind is I burped. I mean, you can't have a better line than excuse me, excuse me, excuse me me for what? I burped. And, and the fact that he's completely at the end of his rope at that point, and the kid is saying, I burped, like he's really ready to, he's really ready to blow. It's so funny because that that little scene almost feels unscripted, you know, because how do you get a little kid to act exactly like a little kid would act and just falling around saying it over and tugging him? And it's such a random line. Like, it's brilliant if that was in the script. Uh, it's amazing. It's so interesting you said that because I was thinking about that, that same scene. And and what happens a little bit late, later when um, the shop owner, I can't remember his name. Um, Mr. Gower. Mr. Gower finds out that his son has um, died of influenza in the war. Um, in his in his despair, he he's filling um, medical prescriptions and he puts poison in these caplets. George recognizes it, d- tries to tell him. The guy's inconsolable. Sees the sign that says "Dad, uh, Dad knows best." Or what's ask, the ask, line? ask Dad, he knows. Ask, ask Dad, he knows. He, he, he can't talk to his dad, but he makes a really smart, mature decision to not bring those pills over. And then he's getting smacked around. Um, and he still shows so much compassion 
uh, to Mr. Gower. He he sees his pain and is patiently, even though he's getting hit and and begging him to stop hitting him in his bad ear, um, he tells him, it's okay. I won't tell anybody. I know you're hurting. Um, this empathy that that George Bailey shows here, I mean, it's incredible for a child, but then the whole movie sort of plays out that time and time again, when he has to choose between maybe what is best for him and his desires to go out and see the world or whatever, or do the right thing for his community, for his family, um, for his wife, um, whatever, he, he always makes the right choice. Um, and and I, I think it's really powerful because it, it blows up at him at a certain point, but then it comes back around at the end to sort of show that this culmination of these life choices that he's made his whole life um, are the sort of defining moment um, of his life. And in, in this sort of self-obsessed world that we live in today, um, George Bailey stands out of this character who it's, it's never about him. It's never about self-preservation. It's always about us preservation. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. And holding together Bedford Falls, holding together a family, holding together um, all the people that are struggling for a loan, and and this is this is sort of one of the messages to me that I, that I think we're desperately in need of as everybody's out fighting for themselves uh, is that we survive when we look out for each other. So well put. I mean, I I couldn't. I feel like you should be doing the live tweet instead of me. But that I mean, you, I, I mean, you you hit the word really that resonates for me on, on so many levels. And I really um, convey to my kids, which is empathy. Now, empathy is different than sympathy. People confuse the term. Sympathy is when you feel bad for somebody. Empathy is when you feel whatever that person is feeling. I, I use the example of, remember the movie E.T., when towards the end, E.T. and Elliot become like the same. So E.T. is uh, at home and he's drinking, he gets into the fridge and he starts drinking beers and he gets really drunk. And they cut to Elliot at the school, and Elliot feels drunk. That's empathy. That's cosmic empathy. But that's a, so when you talk about him and Mr. Gower, the fact that he could still have that empathy, even when this guy was hitting him on his ear so hard that he was bleeding, is the essence of empathy and the essence of that character. And the other thing that the great point, um, Chad, that you make about George is that yes, he makes the right choice. But he's forced into those situations, and he is working as hard as he can to avoid those situations. The last thing he wants to do is hold Bedford Falls together. He thinks Bedford Falls is holding him back, right? He's he's in that soda shop talking about, you know, he's going to have a harem and maybe three or four wives, and and Mar and he's going to see the world. He's going to do this, and Mary just wants to be with him, right? So. That's what I really, I think that's why the movie works because we can relate to George. George is not this two-dimensional saint. He has his bad moments too. He has his unflattering moments. But when he's forced to make a choice at that point, it becomes about us and not me. And I do think that's been lost. And I think that that's been exposed throughout this pandemic where people are being asked, and we all know what these things are, to do certain things that might make them a little bit uncomfortable, but are what's being needed for the public good. And they're not doing it because they're saying, well, this is about my individual freedom. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes I want to say, well, what beach did you storm? You know, I mean, look at my generation. I'm 51. I didn't have to fight in a war. I didn't have to get drafted. I didn't have to. I mean, you think about, you know, in the movie, they talk about rubber drives and, you know, um, different drives and, and, and curfews. And, you know, there was rationing during World War II. Americans could only drink one cup of coffee a day they were being asked to do. So um, this is nothing new. And, you know, maybe this sort of individual uh, attitude, uh, look, that's part of the American fabric as well. George certainly had that capitalistic spirit, spirit. I mean, he took on Mr. Potter, you know, beat him fair and square. So there's some of that in there. But that's why I do think the movie still resonates, Chad, which is that, you know, we don't want to have to make these sacrifices, but there are certain points in our lives where we're forced into those positions. And what are we going to choose? Is it going to be about only what's best for me? Like Mr. Potter's line, you know, Peter says to him, you know, but they have children. And Mr. Potter says, well, they're not my children. And Peter says, well, they're somebody's children. So is it going to be about what I have or what others have? So these are these are good. These are good questions. And it's a good conversation piece for, for Christmas Eve. It really is. And, um, you know, we we get this really cool job of talking about 
college basketball and NBA prospects and and whatever. And and you know it's it's so so interesting to be on Twitter and. But there's so much else going on in the world right now. I think it's worth sort of taking a few minutes as we as we cruise into Christmas week um, to remind to remind us all, um, uh, you know, about what the spirit of this season is supposed to be. And and as a as a reminder, and it's a wonderful life is is this sort of powerful reminder of we can be Mr. Potter, um, and you know, Mr. Potter has wealth, um, he has power. Uh, you know, people have to crawl. Uh, to him, um, and he and he feels like a bigger man um, uh, because of it. Uh, and you can have sort of all that um, and die cold and alone uh, and, and friendless, and sort of see the world collapse around you. Or you can be you can be George Bailey, and um, and and you know I think anybody would watch in that movie. We all know who we want to be. Uh, I, I think there's nobody that says oh, man, I really want to be Mr. Potter, right? Right. Um, I think we all know who we want to be. Um, but there's these individual choices, and this is the thing that I think is so interesting about the movie. It's these small little choices um, that are along the way, none of which he can anticipate and none of which are going to be big. He's leaving for his honeymoon with $2,000 to finally get out of there when there's a run uh, on the bank. Uh, and it's Mary who says, I've got some money um, right right here. And that $2,000 ends up with $2 um, You know, at the end into that bank run, there's these small little choices, these moments of sort of kindness um, and usness that really matter. And so I'm gonna encourage all of our all of our listeners here, like what does that look like for you uh, in, in, in your life um, today? Everybody's different, everybody's in a different situation. Like how do I choose us um, over self? Not not them over me, because that's not what it's about, it's about us, right? Um, and, and, and how would I do that? And, and uh, I think we could make the world a little bit better place. Um, and uh, I'm also look out for our listeners today. So uh, if you're struggling, haven't been able to afford a subscription to NBA NBA Big Board um, yet, it's Christmas. You don't got much going on. Um, hit me, Chad Ford Insider. Uh, I'm going to hook some of you up. Uh, you know, for Christmas right now. And I want to say before we go, uh, you said a lot of very um, incredibly kind uh, things uh, about me to your audience, which I appreciate. Um, you you are an exemplar. Um, frankly, much more so than I am, uh, in, in helping others to, to find this um, ability to serve and to look past our differences. I don't know how many people are really familiar with the work that you've done around the world uh, in terms of conflict re- resolution. This is your uh, academic uh, area of expertise. This MBA draft stuff is just a little hobby you have on the side. Um, and the work that you do, particularly uh, in the Middle East, as someone uh, who's Jewish, an area that's um, very near and dear to my hearts, you know, I've always been inspired by the fact that biblically and historically, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all trace their roots back to Abraham, you know, and uh, I- I've always been inspired by that. And I, I, when you learn about that and read about that, you say to yourself, what the hell are we fighting for? <laughs> what, what, what are we talking about? I mean, the message of all these religions is the same. And it's the same message that George Bailey has to come to. And that's just just being kind and serving each other. So thank you to you for having me. And thank you for this conversation. And thank you for the work um, that you continue to do, even though you blew it on Stephen Curry. And uh, I wish you and yours a very uh, Merry Christmas, very safe holiday season. And I look forward to a time when we can uh, be together and talk about how wrong we are with all our draft picks. Seth, really appreciate you taking out the time to do this. It's been, it was as good as I thought it was going to be. Enjoyed it so much. It's at the end of our podcast. Seth, what time is it? Chad Ford, Sharpie. It's Sharpie. You've listened to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Aloha. We'll see you in 2022.